0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival podcast. as always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 22nd, 2017. It's a Thursday. On Thursdays we do listener call shows the way that you get on a listener call show. Is you pick up your phone, and when you pick up your phone, you match the numbers eight six six sixty five. Think eight six 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 five t h i n k. You won't get a hi caller. This is Jack live on the air with you because I don't do that. Uh, it's a pre recorded message line. You can leave me a message. The best way to get your call on the air: ask your question or make your point up front immediately, like not four sentences in, like immediately. My my name is so and so. My question is: details are. Best formula, 90% of the time, that will get you on the air sooner or later. If you don't follow that formula, we just don't know. The other thing is, uh, and we'll hear this today, I'm trying to clean it up right now and hopefully I'll clean it up pretty good for you, but don't talk into the mic or into the mic of the phone and then turn your head away from the phone and then come back to the phone and then turn away and come back like that. That's very difficult for me to fix. I'm, I'm doing it for one call today because I think it's a good call. Uh, also, make sure you have some bars on your phone. That's really important too when you're using your cell phone. Also, you can use a speak pipe. Go to survivalpodcast.com, scroll down, you'll see the Speak Pike button. You can click it there, and with your mobile device or your microphone-enabled computer, leave me a message, and I will get it through the magic of email. All of that today has led up to about eight great calls. This is what we have. I have a call that has what I will call flawed logic from a really great guy who's made a really lot of great calls, but this this is not one of them, but it is a teachable moment. I'm calling it the flawed logic of transferring student loans to a credit card. Um, I have a question from a, from a little gal out there that wants to know what the easiest fruit tree to plant is for a kid. We'll talk about how that applies to everybody, not just kids, and we'll help her out. Uh, when do you involve the state with a road rate in- incident? We're going uh, we'll to talk. hear from a guy today that has a kind of nasty way to get back at people. And I actually think, even though I don't like it on some levels, on other levels it has merit. I'll talk about how you have to make that decision, especially as someone that doesn't want to involve the state in anything. But we live in a world where the state is what the state is right now, and the state is the option in some situations. And I'll talk about the, uh, the repercussions of doing that and the guilt you might feel if something went horribly wrong, let's say. Um, I answered a question last week on you know, the concept of stolen valor and wearing like surplus military clothing and all. Another vet chimes in with his opinion on it. It's basically the same, but he comes from a different perspective, ending up at the same result. That's always a good thing. Understanding what is needed for a cryptocurrency to be used for everyday purchases. Uh, Follow-up from yesterday's interview uh, on Dash. Next up, tips on securing your home. We have a question for I bought a new home, and I want to make sure I'm secure. And why would the government set up a website on fatherhood? Critical thinking analysis of that. Uh, and I think a lot of people, when I go back to its origin, will be like, wow, really? It's been around that? Yeah, yeah, it has. And it's, it's not something from... Uh, I guess probably the administration people would think it's from. Um, and then the best livestock to improve pasture from the start. You have crappy pasture. Uh, you want to eventually multi-graze it. Where do you start? What animal would probably be best for that? All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done everything and I do mean everything for your prepping needs ready made ready to go at readymaderesources.com. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at directive21.com. Again, directive, and then the number is uh, 21.com. Before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take a look at this year in, uh, the year in history for this episode, which is the year 12. I'm still struggling to not call it the year that was the episode. Uh, we did over a thousand, I think, like that, and that's a, that's a tough thing to, to change after that long. But the year that was, the year that was the year 12 we have, uh, from David Verne, uh, one short segment for the year 12, training the new guy. Contributed by David Verne. Augustus will turn 74 this year and begins the process of handing over power to his heir, Tiberius. Tiberius has been busy earning the Gaul, ensuring that Gaul stays safe from German incursion and seems content to stay on the Roman side of the Rhine. Augustus requests that the Senate give Tiberius command over all legions and provinces, essentially making him emperor in all but name. Tiberius also begins to attend the Senate meetings in Augustus's place. My take by David Verne a smooth transition of power is a necessary necessity for a state. it meant that things would go on normally and nobody got killed unfortunately that wasn't always there wasn't always a clear successor this has already this this has already and will continue le- to lead to numerous civil wars that will nearly tear the Roman Empire apart. all right so what lesson is there in that for us today? Well, one, it is the foundation of the republic that our founders gave us. Um, And of course, you know, I I hate always having to couch this with I would prefer a stateless society, but I'm also a pragmatist, right? And and I do think if we're going to have a government, we should at least abide by, you know, the terms and conditions of the contract that was issued uh, in the form of our constitution. And, And one of the things that does still go on today. And it is something that our founders knew because they were students of history was necessary for a nation to continuously go forward and and, and grow was a, a smooth transition of power. That you couldn't have somebody lopping off somebody's head every time that somebody new decided they wanted to be in charge. And not only that, you had to have a, a means of transition that was legitimate for everybody involved. That everybody felt like, okay, that's the way it is now. Whether I like it or not, that's the way it is. And what they knew, what they knew, by setting election terms in four-year cycles and six-year 6, six year appointments for the Senate, two years for the House, that created change frequently if people really wanted it. And what I believe they saw this was as a way to avoid rebellion, revolt, revolution, uh, overthrow of government, because it would always be easier it would always be easier if you really wanted things to change to basically what we call "vote the bums out." the The flaw in the ointment is that over time, the bureaucracy has greater impact on your daily life than the elected authority. That's that's partly where it all went wrong. So we employ these, we elect these people to be our representatives, our congressmen, our senators, our president, our vice president, our state representatives, etc. And they use that power to create a bureaucracy. And even when we change the elected official, the bureaucracy remains largely unchanged, which has created additional stability, which to be fair is one of the things that created enough stability in this country for it to become as prosperous as it is. The problem is that the bureaucracy is a leech. It's a leech. And and I want you to think about this. If you have a leech on your arm, it's not really a problem. Yeah, I know you can pluck it off, but I mean even if like you, like if somebody gave you a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever would do it for you. Here's ten thousand bucks, leave this leech on your arm for a day. Oh, okay. And reality that, that leech could draw blood from you for the rest of your life and it will never take enough blood to where it will do you harm. It will actually get to a point where it's had enough that it will leave on its own. Like it will go like, okay, I'm full now for a while and go to something else. But if I put ten thousand leeches on you, they'll bleed you dry quickly. Or one leech the size of ten thousand leeches combined. And this is what we've created in the United States is a is a cesspool of leeches draining the system. And while it does enable a relatively smooth transition in power, we've seen it create some real Headaches for our current president, obviously, because many of the bureaucrats have been ensconced since the days of the first Obama administration or some, the Bush administration, some, the Clinton administration, really don't want Trump. That's part of all the leaking and all the problems. But beyond that, it's, it, they've gotten so big and so entrenched that it's very difficult for elected officials, those officials to basically burn off the leeches or drain the swamp, right? Now, I don't think the swamp's going to get trained, but even if even if you really want to, it's a very difficult thing to do. Because leeches don't let go when they're still sucking blood. And this bureaucracy, folks, is sucking blood. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, and you hear me talk all the time about the over sixty discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost, Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an Epac Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18 cents 3 an episode. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the first call of the day. This is a, a call from Jason, um, and it is about... Student loans. And it sounds good in theory, but let me tell you about it in practice after the call.
1: Hey, Jack, I'm a few episodes behind and listening to the guy comment on the student loans. And I'm going to give you what may become your second reason to have a credit card and besides the car rental. And that is that you can often get a credit card with a fifty thousand dollar limit on it. And now, if you have 160000 in student loans, it won't work. But transfer the student loans to that credit card. The reason being is, hey, you pay it off, it's more interest. If you get into trouble, a lot of times those credit cards will freeze the account and drop you down to a lower interest rate, sometimes as low as 3%, to keep you from defaulting. And what you basically have done is converted that $50,000 in student loan that you can never bankrupt you know, get rid of, even with bankruptcy, into a loan that is now a commercial loan.
0: Okay, so while this in theory sounds good, I will take debt that can never be gotten rid of or shed off through uh, something like a bankruptcy or negotiated down or what have you. Um, there's there's a lot wrong with it. First of all, um Transferring a balance is not that easy to do. Okay. Um, even if you get a credit card, let's say you get a credit card that has a $30,000 limit, a lot of times they'll send you checks with that credit card, four or five checks. And basically, you write that check, it puts a balance on the credit card. You, what you'll find is the limit on that will be like $5,000 or 7500 bucks. They won't allow you like an indiscretionate use of the credit card balance. Uh, On lump sums. They will require you to do what you call a balance transfer. So if I have a MasterCard with a 15% uh, interest rate and Visa says, hey, you know, Jack, you can have this one with 5.9 and free balance transfers, well, then I just initiate that transfer and basically I assume the debt over to the other credit card and cancel the MasterCard and now pay Visa with a lower interest rate. That works. And there are other things that there's other types of debts that credit cards will allow you to do a straight-up balance transfer or that the person holding the debt will take the credit card and say, you, you, let's say you bought a sofa set and it was 1500 bucks, and you financed it at zero interest uh, for 12 months, which a lot of furniture companies do. And I think it's, this is very stupid debt, but I'm giving you examples. Th- that person will take a, a Visa card as payment. So you bought this thing for twelve months zero interest at fifteen hundred dollars, and you're at your eleventh month and you know you're you don't really want to pay it off in cash, and you have that shiny credit card and you phone them up and say, I want to pay my balance in full with a Visa card, give it your number and boom, it's done. And now instead of paying them like eighteen point nine, which is what those kind of deals always roll into, you pay the credit card company six, eight, whatever it is, right? So those types of things are all doable. I don't believe you can call up Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac and say I want to pay off my student loan with a Visa card, and give them a phone a a number over the phone and pay it off. I don't think you can do that. Maybe you can, but I'm pretty sure you can't. And I'm not. I'm pretty sure it's not because they don't want to do it. I'm pretty sure it's because Visa, Mastercard, etc. Don't want to incur the that kind of uh, debt transfer. They know full well. That your student loan is something that will attach itself like a leech to you, just like a bureaucracy for the rest of your life. So there's an issue there. Um, There's another issue in that, generally speaking, you'll pay a lower interest rate on your loan. So unless you're doing it specifically for the purpose of I'm about to default, you know, if you were about to default and you had a $50,000 credit card with an empty balance, you see where that goes. And I really think if you did manage to transfer, say, $50,000 worth of student loan debt to a credit card that had a zero balance, you know, a few weeks ago, and then decide to file bankruptcy protection, that that credit card company could file quite a bit of legal impediment against you if they figured it out, and they probably would. They'd know where that balance came from. And... I think the legal term for this is something called new debtor syndrome, where it's like, I'll just go get as much debt as I can and declare bankruptcy. And courts are starting to push back on that. So I think there's just all kinds of problems there. Now, the concept of whether you're going to default or not, if you can move student loan debt into some form of personal debt, that's a typical personal debt, so if the eventuality of a bankruptcy ever occurs, that you're subject to the same protections from that debt, as as any other debt, I think it makes sense if you can find a way to do it. But credit cards probably are the worst way um, to do something like that. Like a personal loan from a bank would probably have much better terms. Now, the other thing is there are certain amount. You know, if you pay on student loans the way that you're supposed to, without ever missing a payment for a certain amount of time, not all of them, but the, what we would call the the government, not back, but the full government student loans. There is a forgiveness point in them. So you don't get that from a credit card company. So I just don't think this is a good idea. I mean, I think obviously the best idea is to keep student loan debt to a minimum to nothing in the first place. And I personally think if you need student loans to get through your first two years of college, you should not be going to a regular college. Because you can't work your way through college. It's too expensive. You don't have enough time, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you can. It's called community college. You make sure your, your your credits are transferable, you work your ass end off, you get A's and B's only, and you will have no problem with decent test scores and a, a transcript with A's and B's from community college transferring to a university and doing your last two years there. And if you can't afford to pay for two years of community college, get a freaking job. Okay, That's what I'm going to tell you. Deliver pizzas. Go work for Domino's and bring freaking chicken wings to a guy like me it doesn't order pizza because it has too many carbohydrates on it, okay? That, that's what you do. You go get your ass a job, drive for Uber, do whatever you have to. You can afford, there is not a, a, a able-bodied person over 18 years of age that if you're willing to work your ass off, can't get your ass through two years of community college. And if it means living at home for two years, then you live at home for two years and give your parents some freaking money for room and board. Don't be a freeloader after you're 18. They won't resent you if you if you do that. They won't be thinking, "What is this person going to go off and, and have their own life?" Even if it's fifty bucks a month, something at some at the point when you no longer are in high school, young people, and if you're still living at home, you should be giving something from your earnings to your parents who took care of your ass for eighteen years and made sure you had everything you need. It's time for you to start giving back, and it's an incentive for you to start thinking, "Man, I could." I could be applying that toward you know my own life, and 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 you know it's way easier. You're not going to live anywhere for fifty to hundred bucks a month, but it's it's the right thing to do. Start buying some of your own food and shit like that too. It's hard. That's why not everyone does it, and that's why people that do it get ahead. I mean that's something that I think people need to get through their freaking heads in this country. All the shit people bitch about is being too hard or too complicated or too difficult, or it's not like it used to be. And blah 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 bullshit. When you get off your ass and you do those things, you get ahead of all the other people that are making those excuses. Because this is a fundamental reality in life. You can make excuses or you can make money. Pick one. Pick one right now for the rest of your life. Make excuses or make money. That's it. And it doesn't have to be money on the other side of that one. It's just all of them result in money. Because you can make excuses or you can make results. You can make excuses or you can make progress. But you're not going to make excuses and make progress. You're not going to make excuses and make money. It's just reality. And there's no magic bullet to take care of your student loans. You did it, you got to undo it. And if there's a way to work that system, to shed a bunch of it, then do it. And by all means, if you can, without getting yourself in legal trouble, without creating a much higher interest rate for yourself, convert student loan debt to a form of debt that if you ever do end up in a bankruptcy, you do have protection from it, then yeah, I think that makes logical sense. Let's take another one.
2: Hi, I'm here from Michigan. What is the easiest fruit tree for a kid to grow?
0: Well, Aaron, in Michigan, thank you for calling in. And I want to try to help you figure out what kind of fruit tree, or maybe if you're lucky and you talk to your parents, right, trees you can grow in Michigan that will be easy for a kid to grow. Now, here's the interesting thing. We often think of kids as having, you know, maybe not the same level of capabilities as an adult because they haven't learned yet and they haven't grown up yet. But growing trees is a pretty good equalizer, Aaron. Um, You are just as capable of growing a tree as your dad or your mom or your big brother or big sister, if you have one, or your aunt and uncles are, or your grandparents. Because trees do most of the growing for themselves. They're kind of like kids. As long as they get the stuff that they need, they are going to grow. And your climate in Michigan is a wonderful climate for growing trees and probably a pretty daggone good climate for growing kids, too. All right, so what I did, and I think this will help everybody, not just you, is I said, well, if I was in Michigan and I wanted to grow some fruit trees, what I would first do is say, well, what do people who grow trees for a living grow here in Michigan? Because the people that do that, if their trees don't grow well, if they don't produce well, etc., then they don't make any money. It makes them really sad. It also makes them a thing called broke. And then they can't grow any more trees. And then we're all sad. So they tend to grow trees that are the the easiest thing, maybe not the best thing, but the easiest thing to grow and get production from in your climate. And it turns out the number one uh, productive fruit tree grown commercially in Michigan is cherries and that's both tart and sweet cherries, with tart cherries, which would be more like pie cherries, or cherries that would be something to make a jelly or a jam or something like that, uh, are the easiest uh, or or the most prevalently grown. And then the other fruit trees that are grown commonly in Michigan are apples, peaches, and pears. Now, the peaches are much more a southern tree area, and they they're grown mostly in southwestern Michigan where your winters are a little bit milder and your summers are a little bit longer. So I might stay away from those. That might be like a, a third or fourth or fifth thing to try. But apples and pears are both really great hardy plants to grow in your area. And pears are probably a little bit more hardy than, than cherries. So I would say in order, I would look at cherries, then pears, and then apples. If you're going to grow pears, I would look at Bartlett and Bosk pears, and Bartlett is B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T, and Bosk is B-O-S-C. Uh, both of those are very hardy, and if you grow one of each, if you can talk parents into it, you get good cross-pollination. Uh, cherry trees, there are just just about any variety of cherry that you can think of will do well in your climate. And you'll want to make sure you pick two different varieties and maybe your dad or your mom and you could get on a website like Bob Wells Nursery or Rain Tree Nursery or Stark Brothers uh, or get one of their catalogs and go through them together and pick out the right trees to grow uh, for your area and look at different cherry and and pears and uh, I would say apples as well. I would also say that you, you might want to check out a website that is called... Um, cold, street, cold stream farm like a stream like a river cold stream farm and um, you might want to have your parents order for you a couple of a plant called sand cherry also known as Hanson's Bush Cherry These are a, they, they look like a cherry and they taste like a cherry but they're actually a plum they do still have some in stock and they're not very expensive but it might be a lit, little late in the year to be ordering bare root trees for planting But in Michigan, you might be able to get away with it. And for about 12 bucks, they can get two one to two foot trees or for 16 bucks, two, uh, two to three foot trees. And if you take good care when you get them in the ground, if they get, you know, some leaves on them this year and come out next year, they will blow up for you. Now, what they grow is a thing that's a little bit smaller than a standard cherry. It's actually a plum, but it tastes like a cherry. And by the way, plum trees will grow good in your area as well. All of those trees are easy to grow, and I would say that instead of worrying about which one is the easiest to grow, what you should do, Aaron, is you should say to yourself, what am I most exciting about growing? Cherries, pears, or apples? And maybe get some of these sand cherries just because they're like a little bush, too, that you can fit in anywhere. But out of the trees, you know, do you, do you think cherries, uh, apples, or pears sound most exciting? And then look at the varieties, and make sure you pick varieties or types that are okay in your USDA zone. And I'm sure your mom or dad can help you look that up. And that just means that they can survive your winters, which are pretty cold up there in Michigan. And then when you plant those trees, here's the most important part. Most people dig a hole as deep as they can, and they drop that little tree way down in there, and they pile dirt up around the trunk. You don't want to do that. What you actually want to do When you plant that tree, you want to get some of the dirt off of the roots if it is a tree that comes in a pot or if it is a tree that comes with bare roots, which means it's just kind of wrapped up and the roots are exposed. Right where those roots begin to flare out and actually go off to the side, you want that to be at the top of your soil line so the top of the highest roots is actually exposed. Dig your hole. Don't put any special dirt in that hole. Fill it back in so the tree's growing in the dirt that it's going to have to grow in mulch around the tree but not right up to it, give it a good watering in, and if it doesn't have a large root structure and needs some stability, ask your mom and dad to help you stake it. Put some stakes in the ground, run some, some, some string or wire to it, and put something around it like spare, spare pieces of garden hose so it doesn't cut into the trunk of the tree. Water it in, take good care of it, make sure it doesn't dry out, get it through to its first winter when all the leaves fall off of it. By the spring, you'll be able to remove those cables, and it will take off, and it will grow even faster than you're going to grow. That's all you got to do. Growing trees is really easy. And if you're trying to figure out what the easiest tree to grow is, find out the trees that are grown routinely in your area. Pick the ones you're most excited about start with those. Once you get a little experience, you can go out and try to do things that are a little bit more edgy. Hope that helps you and the other members of this audience, Aaron. And with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Um, this one is uh, on how to deal with uh, road rage. and uh, It's kind of a creative solution in some ways. And while I wouldn't routinely do it, I'm going to talk about when it might be called for.
1: Your know, uh, little road rage uh stories, uh reminded me of something that I've done in the past and have actually done in, in the recent past. And and that is I fall back a little, get their license plate number, and then call the police and report them as a drunk driver. And on several occasions, I've seen them pulled over to the sobriety test. So the you were late to, you're definitely going to be late now. Maybe that's a dick move, but it gives me some satisfaction.
0: Thank you. Well, before I comment on whether or not you should do this, let's talk about how you would do this if you was going to do this to protect your ass from getting in trouble. There is something called filing a false report, and if you just called up and said, this guy's drunk, uh, as though you had some knowledge of that, uh, specific knowledge of that, it turned out that you and he were in some road rage incident, um, it is possible if guys stone cold sober and he says you were being a dick too that it could come back to haunt you. But if you just made a call, say I don't know what's going on, I got this guy's number, he's swerving all over the place, I think he's drunk or something, but I'm not sure. That's just as good. And, and the the reason that somebody would do this versus this guy's acting like an asshat or whatever is, you know, they may or may not do something, but if someone calls in and says they think the person's driving uh, actively and drunk and endangering lives, unless they're you know, suppressing seven bank robberies or something, some they're going to probably dispatch a car to go deal with it. Now, there's multiple issues here. One from the perspective of law enforcement, now you're using me as your little revenge tool. So as a law enforcement officer, I, I I wouldn't like this, and I certainly wouldn't think that most law enforcement officers would endorse this. From a perspective of, of me being someone that wishes there wasn't a state in the first place, and we had other solutions, to I, I, I'll, I'll fall back to pragmatism here though. So my my reality is that anytime I call the police on anybody, there's a chance that the police might kill them. I know it's a slim chance. I know it's you know one in. A, a 1,000 or whatever, but I'm initiating something that could result because law enforcement officers are trained to use whatever force is necessary to ensure compliance, and this asshole that's flipping me the burger right now, as I said last week, he may have been divorced and fired on the same day and be on the edge of suicide, um, and he, I might afford him that opportunity to commit suicide by cop, I don't know. So if I were going to call 911 on someone for, for driving a certain way, I would have to feel that somebody's life is at risk. So if I see somebody being a complete idiot and behaving in a way where I think this guy's going to get somebody hurt, then and only then would I do it. If somebody cuts me off, slips me the bird, does one you know, scoot and stop or something like that on me, I'm probably not going to make that call. It'll all have to be situational and it will depend. If I'm afforded the opportunity to get the idiot's license plate number, though, I'm gonna do that because if I observe something later, I may not be able to get that plate number. And, and and the reality is that when people are behaving this way, there's 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 different levels of it. There's the common guy that's pissed off because people won't let him in because he's run down to the very end and he shakes his car around a little bit, and it's probably not that big a deal. And then there's the idiot that's that's racing back and forth and screaming and yelling and swerving across multiple lanes. And frankly, I see people doing more dangerous things than most road rage people. Most times I'm on the highway anymore, and it's just the way they drive. Um, I saw a person yesterday cut across four lanes of traffic three times trying to get ahead in rush hour traffic at high speed on I-35 while I'm towing a boat, and one of the people he cut off was me, and he wasn't doing it out of road rage, he's doing it because that's the way that he drives. And I wonder when I see cops running radar patrols on these highways and writing tickets left and right for people doing 5 to 10 miles an hour over, where are you when people are behaving this way? Why aren't you guys out looking for that? Because that person's far more likely to do something that results in somebody's death than, you know, someone that's it's driving with traffic when everybody's doing seventy five and a sixty five and he just happened to be the person that, you know, you punched his lottery ticket for what I call road piracy. And that's why I'm not quick to involve law enforcement in this. But there's times where it's necessary because it's the outlet that we have. And the concept of saying, you know, I think this guy might be drunk to make sure something gets done, well that might be necessary. And I, again, I wouldn't do it to be a dick. I would do it because I genuinely feel that this person is putting lives at risk. If I genuinely feel that you're putting the lives of innocent people at risk, then and only and then, no matter how small it is, am I comfortable putting your own life at risk? I will say this the person that has it happen to them, they might learn something. And they might think about it before they do it again. In the long run, that may save lives. I don't really know what the answer to this one is. I guess I would have to be presented with the situation. I've dealt with idiots on the road. I think anybody that's ever gotten behind the wheel has. I've not seen one that I've been directly involved with a road rage incident where I felt I need to call 911 to protect other lives here. Uh, But I have learned to be more level-headed and cool about it over the years. I get pissed and I cuss and I pound my steering wheel, but I don't engage because I realize that my my pride in getting my revenge may not only result in my injury or death and the idiot's injury or death who might just be having a bad day. What really is sad is it may result in the injury or death of somebody's child or somebody's mother or somebody's father that wasn't involved in the first place. And that's what we have to think of whenever we get behind the wheel. Anyway, let's take another one. This one is uh, another veteran's perspective on wearing military surplus clothing.
2: Hi, hey Jack. This is the Tactical Redneck. You had a caller call in a question about surplus clothing on episode 2026, and I would like to also answer that question because I come at it from a little bit different perspective, but I came to the same conclusion that you did. Now, when I say I came to it from a different perspective, I am a Marine. So, when I went to boot camp to become a Marine, one of the first things they did was issue us uniforms. And our drill instructors were more than happy to explain to us that our uniforms would not have name tapes on them. Because if they did, that would also include a name tape that said, U.S. Marines. And we are not Marines yet. We are recruits. So... We will not be getting name tapes on our uniforms. Also, Marines put their blouse on and they button it up, but you're not a Marine yet. So you're going to button your blouse up, and then you're going to put it on like a T-shirt. Oh, and by the way, Marines blouse their boots. So, yeah, you're not going to be blousing your boots. And then for the next several months, they proceeded to remind us periodically, like daily, that, you know, Hey, you're not a Marine yet. That's why you're not going to do this this way, and that's why you're going to do this this way. So, finally, at the end of boot camp, you step onto a parade field, and your drill instructor steps in front of you, and he removes your cover, and he pins on an eagle, globe, and anchor. And then he puts your cover back on your head, symbolizing the fact that you have earned the right to call yourself a Marine. So that's why Marines tend to take stuff like this a little more seriously than other people do, because it's a right that we have earned. Now, with that being said, if I go see some dude standing in front of Starbucks, and he's obviously wearing a full uniform, usually with something minor wrong with it, like, say, a rack of ribbons, and he's wearing... BDUs, well, you don't wear awards with your BDUs. Obviously, you're trying to get something for free that I earned. And when I say free, I'm not referring to a cup of coffee. I'm referring to the right to wear that uniform. So, yeah, we're going to have issues. But In addition to that, we also, where I live right now, we've got a lot of dudes that don't make a lot of money. Surplus uniforms are also in this area readily available, and they're cheap. For less money than you can go buy a pair of jeans at Walmart, you can go buy a pair of surplus pants, and they're going to last longer. So there's a lot of dudes running around here that don't make a lot of money that go buy a bunch of surplus pants, and that's their work clothes. We also have a lot of military here, and nobody has a problem with it because they're not trying to, like, get a free cup of coffee. They're not trying to impersonate anybody. They're not trying to say that they've earned something that they haven't. They're just buying clothing that's going to last a long time.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely aware that the Marine Corps does things a little bit differently than the Army does. When you go in the Army uh you do have a name tape and you do have a US Army insignia when you're in in basic training as a recruit Rather than, you know, basically being a full, full soldier, there are some things you can't do in in certain parts of the uniform that are not worn until such time. Uh, you wouldn't wear a unit patch, for instance, because you're not really part of a unit yet, because you're not officially a soldier yet. And there's, there's a lot of other things like that, even though they tell you to have pride in your, your platoon and your battalion and all that stuff. You don't, you don't wear any insignia of that. Um, I think the place where this was, Maybe even overlapped into the, the the army side of things was jump school. You know, you you don't wear jump boots. You don't wear jump boots in jump school. You, you just don't do that because you don't have the right to do it. Um, and there you know there's some other things like that. You know, you you're a leg in jump school, and you you don't get to call yourself airborne until you make that fifth qualifying jump. Fourth one, you're still not there yet. You just haven't done it. And you don't really get to do it until that, uh, that black hat, what they call the trainers in, in jump school, comes by you. And he doesn't take your cover off and pin something on it right on your chest, on the above the pocket of your BDUs. He pins a set of uh, airborne wings. And I don't know if they still do this because everything's been pussified, but back when I was in, he then reared back and gave you a real hard punch in the chest and drove the points of those things right into your chest. And it was kind of a rite of passage. And if you went to a, a regular Army unit that wasn't an airborne unit and you were an airborne qualified soldier, you, you might have two or three others in that entire unit. You're a very small minority, and there was a certain pride in that. And and I guess at the time, I would have been really pissed off if there had been another soldier in my unit serving next to me, walking around with, with, with jump wings sewed onto the BDUs and... Uh, then found out he, had, he hadn't gone through the school and the training, wasn't qualified, he would have got his ass in deep shit. That's why it doesn't really happen in the military very often. You don't see people wearing awards or decorations or insignias or ranks that they're not entitled to wear because somebody's going to find out pretty quick. It's a pretty small community uh, that, you know, you, obviously rank is going to happen really fast. Um, but other things like in dress, dress uniforms, adding additional ribbons and stuff, it just tends to not happen. Uh, because your record is right down there in the in, in the 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 CO and, and first sergeant's office area and what have you. Um, as far as getting upset with somebody for wearing something they didn't earn, if they do put all of the stuff on and things like that, I don't really care. I I, I don't get upset with it because you're, you're 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 wearing something you didn't earn the right to to wear. Because I think you're such a small human being that you just don't matter to me. However. If you're trying to take advantage of other people by doing it, that's when I actually get upset. And I won't tell you you can't wear it. I'll just tell all the people around you what you're doing. Because if if, if they want to buy you a coffee or pay for your meal because you were clever and got your hair cut and wore a uniform that you're not supposed to be wearing, and with that knowledge they still want to do it, well, I, I'm okay with it. I just don't think you're going to find a lot of takers. However, see, see my my thing here is people say, well, like, veterans and soldiers are the victims when you do that. No, we're not. No, we're not. The people you take advantage of, they're the victims. And whether you want to support our our troops or not, what I think is wrong is when somebody misrepresents themselves as anything for the mean to gain support and plays on people's emotions and things like that. So, yeah, and, 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 and he's absolutely right. When you see people that are not military people try to pull off looking like military people, wearing the uniform, they inevitably do things that are incorrect. There's a very specific set of regulations for each branch on where things go, how they are, and how they're laid out. And it's similar enough that generally a person could look, like a Marine could look at an Army uniform and still know that that's, that's not right. That's not right. You know, or you, you happen to notice, like, a, a guy in a Marine Corps uniform, and he's wearing a decoration that's specifically an Army decoration, and you say, were you ever in the Army? And he says, no. Because that does happen, and you, you can wear cross decorations, you know. Or you notice that things are out of order would be one of the other things. Like, you see, like, you know, a national defense ribbon above something like a, an Army Achievement Medal. Well, you're, you're either really a dumbass and since you're wearing the rank of a staff sergeant, I know that you're full of shit, you would, you would have learned that by the time you got there, to put your ribbons in the right order, you've got your ass ripped for doing it wrong, so like, there's almost always, the military person can almost always look at the non-military person trying to perpetrate a fraud and go you're full of shit, you're full of shit, and it's it's, you know, I'll tell you, it's also like the number one thing I hear from people, and I don't hear it much anymore because I don't go to bars and stuff anymore, but I used to, you know, you meet people in bars. Yeah, yeah I was in the Army. Yeah, I was in Special Forces. Really? Well, who are you with? The seventh Group? You almost immediately know they're lying. Guys from Seventh Group don't talk about it. And there's like all these other groups. Like, that's the only one the liar ever comes up with cause it's the only one they know. You know, or you ask them where they were stationed. People that say they went to SEAL school, you know, what was your bud's, bud's class number? And when they give you a number that makes it like you would have been nine years old, or they give you a number that like that one hasn't happened yet. Like, there's all these ways to know this stuff if you're informed. And again, I, I don't really care. You want to play dress up? You know, I saw some dude on Facebook yesterday in some meme or some article that wants to be like a, a six year old girl. And it's like a grown, burly-ass man, burlier than I am, dressed up like a little girl because he doesn't want to be an adult. You know, I don't really care. It doesn't really affect the temperature of water in my pool. It's when you do it for the specific purpose of taking advantage of other people, that's when I care. Because I don't want to see people taken advantage of for any reason. And, And I don't actually think doing it with military should be any more sacred than any other way because I think it's all deceitful and wrong. That's my thoughts. Let's take another one. This one is a question on Dash in regards to our interview from yesterday.
1: Hey, Jack. First, um, I'm thinking Amanda Johnson might need to be a member of the expert panel uh, to, to answer cryptocurrency questions. You're very good, but the whole thing to me is still kind of confusing. 2nd um, with evolution, I guess my my real issue is where do we got to be where where I can use this to buy toilet paper, pick it up on my way home, go home with toilet paper? Because right now, a lot of the things that I do online involve what can I pick up on my way home, you know, whether it's Walmart or in a lot of cases Amazon, no, I cannot pick up from Amazon and take it home, but I can get it fast and And that's kind of as a user end on a user end that's the kind of things that I'm looking for for products and, and products and services that I use where Where does that point come along where I can say, "Okay, I've put some money in this in this uh I've earned some money off of it, and now I can take that money and go buy toilet paper and pick that toilet paper up on my way home from work, and everybody's happy.
0: Thank you. Okay, let's start off with the suggestion that we would make Amanda a member of the expert council. My, my actual issue with that is that it would be impossible for her in her current position as, like, major-ass ambassador for Dash to be what I would feel is necessary in an expert council member in something of the competitive space like cryptocurrency, which would be vendor agnostic. And, and what I mean by that is when well, you have a question for old grouch uh, military surplus uh, Tim Glantz, and it's on a product he doesn't carry, you still get an accurate opinion of it because it doesn't gonna cost co- cause him any problems or grief or anything. You buy it somewhere else. Or if he does sell, he doesn't specifically say, and you should only buy it from me, you don't really care where you get it from. He's here to serve in that capacity, and if it gets him some business, so much the better. The cryptocurrency space is extremely, extremely volatile right now. And so if you were to ask her a question, about something like let's say Ripple or the Dow or what have you. I don't think you could get a fully non biased answer. And I don't say that in any negative way. I mean she's being paid to be an ambassador for Dash. It is her first duty. I also think she really believes in the product and that can cloud you know judgment as well. Though I do think she's very informed about cryptocurrency in general. And I think if you want to get that basic knowledge, again, go to the go to their YouTube channel from yesterday's interview, and listen to it, and I think that you can get that basic knowledge to where the things that I talk about about cryptocurrency won't be over your head anymore. Now, as for the other side of things, with Evolution, for those that missed yesterday's interview, Dash is supposed to bring out by the end of the year the first edition, the alpha edition, of a product called Evolution, which will make it much easier for one person to send Dash to another person. And Dash is simply a form of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. In fact, Dash is basically an altcoin or an alternative coin that is a fork from the Bitcoin uh, uh, blockchain. It's It's basically the same technology and then it's being run on its own in its own ways with its own things and its own special things like being able to be sent completely privately and being able to be sent instantly. So that if I want to buy this cup of coffee for 2 bucks, I can send it 2 bucks worth of dash to you and a couple seconds later it's it's now accounted for and you have it. Which is something that just about every other cryptocurrency is lacking right now. Okay, so but the question then with that is, well how can I have this to the point where I'm on the way home and I decide, you know what, I want a six-pack of beer and some beef jerky to take home and drink and eat by the pool and wind down from work before dinner? And I can go in that store and I can buy it with Dash or I can buy it with Bitcoin. What what is it going to take for that? And the answer is going to be adoption by the merchants. Now, this is something that I think because we live in a way of you know an era of microwave ovens and smartphones, we have forgotten how long a technological innovation that is a paradigm shift actually takes. I want to walk you all the way back to 1985. Which, again, to me, is not that long ago. I was a teenager going through high school getting ready to graduate. Okay. I have to tell you that when I think back and I force myself to remember that time, I don't remember that most of the stores that I went into took credit cards. They took cash and they took checks. Gas stations tended to take credit cards, but... You had to go see the attendant, and they put it on a thing, and they slid it back and forth, and there was a carbon copy, and you signed it, you got it. You didn't drive up to the pump, slot pull, flip it, stick it in, pump it, maybe enter a security code or your zip code, and go on with your way, pull the receipt out, write down your mileage log, and take off. We didn't do that in 1985. And it took quite a while. And think of how much longer credit cards were around. Credit cards came out, I think, in the 60s. Donner's Club, I think, was the first big one in the early 60s. It might have been earlier than that. And by 85, we still weren't seeing credit cards used everywhere. So cryptocurrency as a thing is only about eight, nine years old. As a thing. And for at least half of that time, it was completely obscure. Nobody really paid attention to it. And everybody thought it was a scam. And we're in a world where people still think it's a scam, even though it's been around eight years and has outperformed the dollar six ways to Sunday in just about every variation that's been created. All right, So it's going to take time for this to go on. One of the reasons I'm excited about Dash isn't just what it does. It's that they are actively marketing it. I mentioned they got this guy doing this road tour, and he's going to gun shops and cannabis shops where the cannabis is legal, and he's trying to sell them on. Here's a Dash ATM. By the way, it also does Bitcoin. And they're getting their ATMs in place so that people see the Dash logo and understand. See it right next to Bitcoin. So instead of trying to push Bitcoin out, they're using Bitcoin's notoriety. Oh, this is another, and it works better. It works faster. It works quicker. And you can set it privately, etc. But what it's going to take is one the the Evolution product or some competitor's product like Evolution. It's going to have to come out and make it maybe not grandma-friendly, but at least mom-friendly. right? The average person can have an app like the PayPal app on their phone and send their friend money with Dash. It, it, that's the first thing. And it's going to have to be really easy and, and kind of get away from being scary. to show that account balance in dollars and Dash units right next to each other. And people are going to have to get comfortable with it. And if you think about it, there's still a lot of people that don't have that don't use and don't have PayPal, and not because PayPal pissed them off, because they just it, they don't understand it. And what we're talking about is a, is a a technology that's kind of leaped a generation. I would say people like me are kind of the old farts in the world of cryptocurrency, and I'm in my 40s, I'm not that old. This is a young person's technology, but remember what happens to young people really quick, and they tend to forget this. You know, 20-somethings become 30-somethings in 10 years. And there's a big difference in the decision-making power of people that are 26 and 36 in the world of business. This is something that's coming. And exactly what it's going to look like as it rolls out is yet to be known or seen. But it's going to take mostly that people are willing to take it. As soon as they started putting Visa accepted, Visa MasterCard accepted here... In the windows of shops, as soon as they did that, people started using the credit cards. Oh, I can use a credit card? And then what did it really take to do that? It took the check debit card. Because most people, not all, but most people don't tend to charge everything they buy. They tend to think a little bit about it before they put something on their credit card. What they tend to do is they go out and when they buy groceries, they used to pay cash. Or they would write a check. A lot of times the way you'd write a check at a grocery store is once they knew you, they'd take your check, and until they did, they wouldn't. And then automatic check, uh, basically, deposits came out where they could run your check through a scanner and immediately take your money, and then they were willing to take everybody's check. And they had that Visa and MasterCard logo there. But when they made a card that linked Visa and MasterCard service to your cash balance... Well, now, I'm, it's basically I'm writing a check, but I'm, I'm, it's easier. It's easier to swipe my card or stick my card in and push some numbers than it is to get a checkbook out and write it. And blah. So they made it easier. So what's going to make it where we can go ahead and start using a cryptocurrency in our daily lives and buying stuff at the convenience store or the department store It, it, it is really going to be the fact that they'll accept it, and that it becomes as easy or easier than what we do now. And that's what they're trying to do with evolution. And will they succeed? We shall see. I would like to remind you, though, that the amount of commerce done, point of sale, face-to-face, is in dramatic decline. It's declining every single day. It's declining every single day. The other issue for mainstream American businesses, they're real antsy about going off the books with the IRS. So it's the virtual businesses that are taking the lead in accepting these forms of payments and not converting it to cash assets because they can pay for what they need in virtual assets. And by keeping it there, it makes it very difficult for the government to actually make a case that they owe them any taxes. Because I did business in Dash and Bitcoin and Litecoin this year. Which form of payment do you take? U.S. dollars. Didn't touch one. Don't have any. Don't know what you're talking about. Now, if you have that direct conversation with them, it can go badly, I'm sure. But if you just don't use fiat currency, it's very hard for them to, to come to you and ask for anything. Why didn't you file taxes? I did file taxes for all the stuff I did in cash all the stuff I did in fiat money, all the credit cards, this is this. And they have completely separate entities. And it's this kind of shadow gray market world that it's in right now. But gray markets have a way of becoming mainstream markets over time. This is a new world. And it's going to take time to shake out, and we don't know how it's going to shake out. That's why I constantly say, any money you put in cryptocurrency, you must view as risk capital. If you wouldn't gamble with it, don't put it in cryptocurrency. And I think that's almost not fair to cryptocurrency, though. I think that's a little bit too harsh. If you wouldn't spend it on a lavish meal where you would eat it and be done with it and say, well, it tasted good, but you know, I'm going to forget it in a couple of weeks. If you wouldn't do that with it, don't put it in cryptocurrency. Just don't. you got to be careful because this, this whole thing is going to explode at some point. And then the question is, once it does... Who will the survivors be, and what will that look like? Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. This is on securing your home. Hello, Jack.
3: What measures would you recommend to secure our new home? Details. My wife and I just bought an older home. It is on 2.6 acres, two stories with a partial basement and a large woodworking shop for my business. The land is mostly clear of trees. We have met both the neighbors, and they seem to be good people. We are on the edge of the city, business, homes, and traffic on the front side, but nothing but land and woods to the rear. The neighborhood is the only thing we disliked about the home. It is the rough side of town, but it was everything we wanted and needed with a much lower mortgage than homes on the rich side of town. My woodworking business is taking off. Thank you for your encouragement to start my own business, but for now I still work a full-time job. My job requires me to work away from home four days a week. What are some cheap or expensive things I could do to make our home safer for my wife and kids while I'm away um, or at home? Thank you for all you do, Jack. Honestly, you're an inspiration and my favorite podcast. Uh, Sincerely, Micah from Springfield, Missouri.
0: Okay, so... I, I don't think this is unique to you or being a new home or where you live. I think this is something that applies equally to everybody on large property, small property, etc. Each situ- situation is unique, but the basics are the same. The first thing you have to do is you actually have to get yourself in the mind of a criminal. And I, I actually think this is difficult to do with your own property for the same reason it's difficult for you when you're, you know, trying to do a permaculture design for your property to be the first thing that you design because you're attached to it. So I think one of the things you can do is you can take a ride through your neighborhood and think of if I was casing my own neighborhood and I want to steal somebody's stuff, what would I steal? Who would I steal from? What, what looks worth taking? What looks very risky? Um, where's something vulnerable? What tips me off? You have to actually look at property and things as though you wanted to steal, break in, rob, etc. Then go look at your own home. And and the biggest problem is most people look at their security from inside their home or inside their yard. Well, your criminal is casing your property from outside your property. Something is cluing them in, even if they're going to, do a ruse like pretend to be a door-to-door salesman for a closer look, there's some reason that they've decided on your property. So you look at that, and then you correct those issues. And then you look at it again, and then you correct those issues. And those could be things like, well, it's obvious that that door can be easily opened, or that valuable thing is in plain view. And you make those corrections. That's kind of the number one thing that I would recommend. Good locks and use them. Um, that's, you know, most cat burglars break in during the day. I've told the story again, but it bears repeating here. I listened to one of the best cat burglars in history um, discuss how he broke into houses, and this guy did not break into houses like yours and mine. One of the houses this guy broke into was the Kellogg family's house, like as in the cereal people. Yeah, they have billions of dollars, and what he would do. As he would case the place and he would kind of figure out what was going on and when was the right time and when mom might be out playing with her little garden or watching the kids or whatever and that they didn't lock the door and he would slip right in the front door and he would go straight to the master bedroom. And when he got to the master bedroom, he would close the master bedroom door nice and quietly and lock it. He wouldn't ransack the place. He would methodically go through it. And after doing it for years, he knew where people hid cash and jewelry, which were the two big things you could remove and get, you know, get something for right away. And they were usually kept where? In the master bedroom. And he would try to not leave a trace, and then he would go out the window. Or, if he knew the coast was clear, he'd unlock the master bedroom door and go right back out the front door and go on with his way like he was some kind of service man that was down the street. And what his hope was is it would take several days or more for you know Mom to realize that her $5,000 diamond earrings were gone. And then maybe she might look for him a while before they realize the cash is gone, too, that they keep in the nightstand or whatever and, and what have you. And by the time they reported it, he's long gone, and they have no idea who to look for or what to look for. And, again, he was one of the most successful cat burglars in United States history. And uh, he was one of those guys that's, like, so successful that part of his parole and early release was going around doing, you know, presentations and doing talk shows and stuff like that and telling people the truth about what really happens. So you, that's what you have to realize. that, that The day, daytime break-ins are usually things like that. And those are usually people that don't want to do you harm. Most people that break in don't. Now, pe- do people break in and rape somebody and stuff like that? Sure. But most people that break into a home, they want stuff and they want to get out as quickly as possible. So they want cover and concealment. They want to be quiet. They don't want anything getting in the way. So what is not quiet? Well, dogs are not quiet, especially when something invades their territory. I believe the best security investment that you can make in any property is perimeter fencing around the house and the, you know, the outbuildings. Where the, so like if you have a big property, maybe this isn't, isn't um, financially feasible, But even if you can just put, you know, a reasonable perimeter around the house and, let's say, the garage or the outbuilding or what have you, the barn, wherever the stuff is, and put dogs in there. It's not just that people are afraid to get bit. They don't want something announcing their presence. And dogs, when they're in a perimeter fence, will. My dog, Charlie, outside of the fence or you're allowed inside the fence once you're in here, all he wants to do is be pet and kiss you. You're trying to get over through around that fence. He will eat your face off of your skull. I'm serious. It's not a bluff. He means it. But even the other two that are not quite as security conscious, they bark. They get upset. They growl. This blows the game. The, these are the things that I think are most important. My buddy Brian Black at ITS Tactical is really big into this. He's big on doing the deadbolt locks that lock with the key on the inside and the outside. I think that's an incredible safety risk. I would not have it if somebody put one in my house. For me, I would immediately rip it out and then probably smack them in the face for doing it. I think that's that's going to the extreme, and I think you're more likely to end up dying in your house from a fire because you can't get out uh, than protecting yourself from burglary by doing that. Um, I think that keeping your eyes and ears open, being connected with your neighbors. Get involved with nextdoor.com. Set up a group. Talk to those neighbors you said that are good neighbors. Ask them for their email addresses. Send them an invite. Ask them to invite the other people in the neighborhoods they know. Start communicating with each other, using that asset. Get the app, put it on your phone. If you see a car driving around, doesn't look right, post that on next door. And if it ends up being, oh, I had some guy deliver feed yesterday, well then you, okay, well then we know that. You don't nobody gets upset about it. Now everybody knows that that, that guy's okay. But if no one knows who they are or someone does know who they are and they had to run in with them too, they post that. When neighbors are active and paying attention to what's going on, bad people go elsewhere to do bad things because it's dangerous for them because they don't want to get caught. They don't want to get caught and they don't want to get shot. And they probably I should say they don't want to get shot and then they don't want to get caught. There's been criminals like this, the petty criminals, the the thieves, etc., interviewed many times and this is a hell of a case for the Second Amendment, that that when asked, are you more afraid of a police officer or a homeowner, they always say the homeowner, because he'll probably shoot me. He won't know who I am. He's not trained. He's winning his rights to shoot me, and he'll blow my brains out, and I don't want to die. But yet they steal anyway, and they thieve anyway. I mean, I think that's the most important thing, though, is to to look at your house with the eyes of a thief. And then fix those things, you know. We're dealing this right now with my new boat. I've got to figure out exactly how to set that up because I'm not going to be able to keep it in my garage where it doesn't look like, hey, I could just back my truck in there and steal it. Probably because I don't want to end up freaking shooting somebody try I steal my boat, you might get your ass shot. So I've got to think about exactly how I set that up so it doesn't become a target. And what I'll do is I'll look at it from the road, not from where I put it. See that's that's I think the biggest problem we have with security issues as we look at things as an honest person from inside of them we have to get in touch with the part of ourselves that said if I were dishonest how would I think and we have to look at them from the outside you know other things security tape on the security film on the windows that's probably not a terrible idea that I, but I don't know that it's advantageous as, as you might think it is because if someone knows it's there or has a knife it's very easy to cut um But realize with this, door stops, good locks, security films, all those things, all you're doing is buying time. You're slowing it down. You're making it more difficult for the person to get in. The reality is there is no home in America I can't get in if I really want to. Alarms, I think alarms can be a deterrent, but I don't know how how well they really help. So a sign that says you have an alarm Fake security cameras may be just as effective as a deterrent as paying money for the real thing. If you do have an alarm system, somebody will come, but by the time they come, the problem will probably already have manifested itself to its fruition. Again, I think the most security-based thing you can do is a couple large dogs and a perimeter fence. People do not like dogs, and criminals tend to dislike dogs even more than normal people. When they don't, I mean... I'm telling you, and if you have some dogs even if they're not aggressive if they simply appear aggressive and multiple dogs multiple dogs are far more intimidating than a dog because the person in their head immediately can see dog a on right arm dog b on left arm dog c on little arm if you if you get my drift right okay and to me it's it it's actually very very effective perimeter fence and dogs let's uh take another one. This one is on uh odd question about government and critical thinking. I'll just put it that way.
3: Hey Jack, this is Zach from North Carolina. I have a question for you regarding critical thinking. I uh, saw a billboard today for fatherhood.gov. Fatherhood, like being a father, .gov, as in a government-sponsored uh, website. I perused the site and got to thinking, um, can you help me with critical thinking as to what the government's purpose is for promoting fatherhood? Uh, while I obviously believe it's a good thing to be a father and uh, to have a father involved in a child's life, what's the government's interest in that? Is it a tax revenue um, concern, or is it something else? You can just help me maybe expand on... Uh, why that would be the case. I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.
0: Well, let's start with it on the surface. Like, if the government's intent was genuine here, to promote fatherhood and better fatherhood, when they've absolutely created an environment that has decimated the family unit as a whole. We have more single parents than ever. The family court system is a disaster. We have tons of welfare babies, and we have generational welfare babies at this point. Um... It, it, we have tons of, of men that just are not taking care of their children. We have men being thrown in prison. Um, here's the reality. Stable families are good for a nation. Now, we seem to have done everything to eliminate that, but the, the, the reality is we have a whole bunch of that, but we have a whole bunch of regular families in America. We have a, The majority of families are two-parent households, a lot of divorces, but yet most of the time what happens is there's a remarriage, each side, you know, has some level of visitation, et cetera, and, and stuff goes on fairly stably. But they, it does almost seem systematic that they've done this damage, they've created this welfare state, et cetera. So, if we were being like giving them the benefit of the doubt, we might say that they realize that they realize that we can only go so far with that. There has to be enough producers to keep the consumers happy. And we like having it divided, but we gotta balance it. You know, it's like the tightrope guy, and he's got that big giant stick for balance, and he might play with it to entertain you, but he knows full well if he shoved it all the way over and had one foot on one side and eighteen feet on the other side, it's gonna pull him off the rope. So there's some you know gaming going on there. But they might be trying to balance the equation. Maybe. I don't know. So when I heard this, I thought, well, is this new? Is this an Obama thing? So, I went to the site and it looks like a pretty pathetic attempt. First thing I did was I went to the Dad Talk blog on it to see, like, do they do anything with this? And the most recent post is called Caring is More Than Sharing. Nice. And a pretty short post that anybody with a brain would already know what to do. Uh, it was posted on January 18th, 2017. First post before that was this January 10th, 2017. Uh, December 27, 2016 December 20, 2016 December 14, 2016 December 7, 2016 you can see, Since the Trump administration took over well, this thing really hasn't been posted to at all and I don't know what that means because you're going to hear where it might be actually supportive of Trump's thinking in a second but I am neither supporting nor condemning Trump here I'm just pointing to the reality um, so then my next thing was, so is this an Obama thing? Did Obama start this? Was it an Obama funding thing? So I went to the About Us page. Here it says the who we are. The National Responsible Fatherhood Clearinghouse is an Office of Family Assistance, OFA, funded national resource for fathers, practitioners, programs, federal grantees, states, and the public at large who are serving or interested in supporting strong fathers and families. Mission, the goals of the National Responsible Fatherhood Clearinghouse and RFC are to provide, facilitate, and disseminate current research, proven and innovative strategies that will encourage, strengthen fathers and families, and providers of services via the following priorities. 1. Robust NRFC website, fatherhood.gov. I will say you have failed at that. Having read even when they were posting regularly to the blog and reading the other articles, it's pretty pathetic. A basic parenting website run by like a mom and a dad is probably going to give you better advice than, than they have done here. Media campaign that promotes the responsible fatherhood field and efforts of local programs. In other words, what you heard on the radio. Spend taxpayer money advertising the fact that they're doing this. Okay, social media engagement. That means they're going to post shit on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Development and dissemination of written products that advance responsible fatherhood research and practice. Development and dissemination of written products that advance responsible fatherhood research and practice. That means pay for people to write studies and grants, etc. Okay? Okay. Uh, outreach and presentations at conferences and events. That means spend taxpayer money to fund people who will go out and talk to people for a living, promoting an agenda. National Call Center for Dads and Practitioners, one 4 dad 411 I don't really know what that does. I'm not going to call that. I don't need my brain dumbed down any further than it is. And virtual trainings, which I do not see. I'm sure this was written long ago. About fatherhood.gov, fatherhood.gov is a site for dads looking for tips, hints, and even deals for dads and kids. Find them on Dad Talk blog or on For Dads Corner. Fatherhood programs looking to get started or expand, check out for program section. So if you have a program designed to promote fatherhood, they might throw you some money or give you some advice. Researchers and policymakers looking for the latest on responsible fatherhood check out our library that could be studies to prove prove anything like if you have a transgendered woman does she make a good dad who knows what that could be for funding the national responsible this is where you this is where you go to figure out what's really going on where does the money come from how is it being appropriated etc the national responsible fatherhood clearinghouse is a resource of the US department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families, AFC, Office of Family Assistance, OFA. The Claims Resolution Act of 2010, see I knew it was Obama, hold your horses, reauthorized funding for the National Responsible Fatherhood Clearinghouse. The NRFC was initially funded through the Deficit Reduction Act 2005 for, quote, The development, promotion, and distribution of a media campaign to encourage the appropriate involvement of parents in the life of any child and specifically the issue of responsible fatherhood and the development of a national clearinghouse to assist states and communities in efforts to promote and support marriage and responsible fatherhood. Critical analysis? (laughs) First of all, the Deficit Reduction Act did not reduce the deficit. See, like, all you have to do is look at the name of a bill and see what it says, and then it does the opposite. Okay? So it did not, the deficit did not go down in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, blah, 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 17, right? So it was it was done under the guise of being helpful in reducing the deficit. I guess somebody somewhere made a projection that if we did this, we'd have less welfare payments or court costs or something, Okay, that's what we—that's what it would do for us. Um, And it was—it was mostly to be a media campaign. Then it was reauthorized under our good friend Obama in 2010, um, under the Claims Resolution Act of 2010. The claims—had anybody heard of this? So let's just kind of rewind this. So this goes back to the Bush administration. It it, it came out probably in a way to kind of appease the right wing uh, of of the party. Hey, we're promoting fatherhood through a media campaign, and we're going to disseminate some information. Oh, that sounds good. Um, And then it was reauthorized and made into whatever it became under the Claims Resolution Act of 2010 under Barack Obama. Okay. Okay. The Claims Resolution Act of 2010 is a federal law enacted by the 111th Congress and signed into law by President Barack Obama on December 8, 2010. The act is a response to Pigford versus Glickman case where black farmers were found to have been discriminated against from 1983 to 1997 by the U.S. Department of Agriculture when applying for loans and assistance to start and maintain farms. The case required a $50,000 settlement to every discriminated farmer. However, many potential victims missed the application deadline for the settlement. The bill sets aside $1.5 billion for the estimated 75,000 farmers who are eligible for the settlement. The bill also includes the settlement of $3.4 billion Coble v. Salazar Trust Fund lawsuit brought forth by Native American representatives against the United States government, citing that the U.S. government incorrectly accounted for Indian Trust assets. The final version of the bill was passed by the U.S. Senate by unanimous voice vote on November 19, 2010, and then approved by the U.S. House of Representatives by a vote of 256 to 152 on November 30th. It was signed into law by Obama on December 8th. What the hell does that have to do with fatherhood.gov? I wonder what other writers were applied to this. So they were playing around with $1.5 billion. For Farmers. Remember I talk about the Flags for Orphan Bill, right? That actually came from the Simpsons, by the way. But, like, you know, the Flowers for Orphans Bill or the Flags for Orphans Bill, like, you just, you can't vote against it. The Senate voted unanimously for this. The House, who probably actually read it, and probably due to other things on it, voted 152 to 256. Now, remember, in 2010, the Democrats had control of the House and the Senate. They had all three branches of government. They had Ramboed Obamacare through, etc. This was a little thing that they just kind of teed off on. So, what I'm thinking is you set aside this trust fund of $1.5 billion for these people who hadn't claimed their $50,000 yet. okay? And you set up these little satellite programs and you say, well, if the money's not claimed by a certain time, we can start using some of these monies to pay for these other things like the you know fatherhood.gov site. And it creates a whole little place for you to dole out money and grants and shit like that because you have all this money and you just got to figure out what to do with it. You can hire somebody to blog once a month and pay them an annual salary of $100,000 a year or something like that. There's all kinds of things that you can do if you have all these little things. And I think that most of the things like this in government, that's why they exist. Even if they start out with some kind of a noble purpose, hey, we'll run some ads about being a good dad, we'll try to do this, we'll have this positive ROI, and maybe we'll sponsor a couple of initiatives, and then it just becomes another lump of bureaucracy. Because here's the thing, other than hearing them advertised, who's benefited from this? What news story have you heard where somebody benefited because fatherhood.gov came in and ran a seminar or something like that? The critical analysis... It's another way that they can dole out your stolen money. That's what it is. I wish the government really wanted to be in the business of encouraging responsible fatherhood and better parenting and solid family units. But when you look at the totality of government policy, it's resulted in the exact opposite of that. We have destroyed the nuclear family unit as being the mainstream way that people grew up in America. And a little website isn't going to change that. Not at all. I do think, to the Trump administration's credit, they basically said, we don't need to be spending money on that anymore. That's what it looks like to me. Um, but what about this advertisement you heard? Maybe there's stuff in, you know, already contracted. I don't know. But it looks like this site has not been touched uh, since Trump took office. And, you know, that's probably a good thing. I i mean i looked around this site and i couldn't see anything that would benefit me as a father as a grandfather um i i, I just i i don't know that there's anything that, that's that's helping anybody here maybe there's like in texas i'm looking at right now they have the horizon outreach uh the horizon eagle followup program has served a thousand followers by providing them healthy parenting and relationship education, as well as resources to increase their economic stability. Really? Who are these people and where? I I don't buy this. I don't buy this. So Dallas, Texas is supposed to be the Alliance for North Texas Healthy, Effective Families, um, offers D- Champion Dad Project, a responsible fatherhood program in Dallas, Texas, that recognizes the importance of four interrelated factors in the well-being of a child. This TCD program addresses these issues in an integrated, innovative approach through partnerships with county and state criminal justice systems. I mean, when I read stuff like this, it's like somebody just made some shit up, is what it sounds like, like to justify their existence. I don't know. If you want to rely on this website for help, go ahead and let me know if, let me know how that works out for you. Me, I'd rather read the mom blog or the dad blog or something like that, the real one run by a private individual that can do a better job. Let's take another one. Um, this one is on improving pasture and choosing the right livestock to do it with.
4: Hey, Jack, it's Aust from the Homesteady podcast. And I got a good question for you. We've been working on our farm and we've been trying to improve the pasture. My question is, if you had any livestock on a brand new pasture, what livestock would you choose to improve the pasture and get it ready in the end for running cows on it? Let me elaborate a little bit now. So, on our homestead, Jack, right now we have ducks, we have chickens, we have some turkey, and have pigs, and this year we just took the guys into getting ourselves a family milk cow. We planted some brand new pasture from the well, crops. This used to be an area where there was just parking. It's heavily compacted and it's not great soil, not a lot of topsoil. So we planted a pasture mix. Uh, We got some organic seed from a local farm. A mix of rye, clover. Um, We also got some, Um, what else did we get? Rye, clover, peas and beans, and timothy. And we want to run the cow on it next year, but we were told not to put the cow on the pasture this year to let it go to move. So if you had any other animals to work with, what livestock would you run on it this year? My initial thought was it probably best to use ducks, we don't have a whole lot of ducks, we so only have five muscovies. Uh, but what animals would you use to improve the pasture quality before you went and put a big cow on it? Thanks for your input, Jack. I'm really trying hard to decide what we could put on it. It needs some help. The soil needs some nutrients. I know you have some experience improving your pastures with ducks. I'd love to hear what other animals need to put on a first year poor quality pasture to improve it. Uh, we have electric poultry netting and all that other stuff all the tools thanks
0: Jeff love you man, and I uh, appreciate you addressing the questions. Um, this a huge depends and I, I don't want to pick on the caller at all but that was the call that had the fade outs and in outs and I've done the best I could to clear it up and I think it was a combination of maybe head turning and, and not the best cellular connection or maybe a bad earpiece or something I don't know but uh, try to keep your call short direct and, and then when you give me lots of information, try to give me the information that's most important. So this is the information that I don't have. You're, where you're at in the world and how big the pasture is. These are both pretty important. If it's, you know, five-acre pasture or four-acre pasture, three-acre pasture, maybe even a two-acre pasture, I might be putting that cow there no matter what anybody said. Um, broken into really small electro fence paddocks and moved daily, that cow might be the best asset you have. I, I don't really, I don't really know because I don't really know bioregion, how hot it's going to be, what kind of infrastructure you're going to have to have to get that freaking cow, you know, some shade and water and all that stuff. Um, my instinct here is that the best thing you could do is a run or two, uh, you know, back to back runs of meat chickens. Uh, the ducks are not, Overall, the best animal for pasture improvement. They do a, a reasonable job, in my instance, because the land is so brittle, I did not want the disturbance of chickens, and the chickens were too destructive, and I didn't want to run with electro net fencing because I can't do it. It's, first of all, it's just impossible because you can't put anything in the ground here because it's that, that's how rocky it is. Uh, so I had to run on large paddocks uh, of about an acre apiece, and I'd eat an animal that was soft on the land, and one that would do some browsing and grazing and pest control and manure. Uh, and ducks are what works for me. They probably could work for you, but Muscovies are pikers, man. Muscovies are the laziest form of duck. They pretty much don't do any work. Um, my Muscovies tend not to even go... Like, today they're kind of hanging out with the main flock because the pools are close to the, the, the main duck holding area and the deck and they're in the, the paddock where the deck is. So they kind of like to hang out under the deck most of the day. They don't do a lot. Uh, they like to go in the garage, and they like to crap on the porch. That's why there's a lot less of them than there used to be. Um, regular you know, mallard breed ducks, and all of your ducks, your, your Welsh Harlequins, your Layers, your Rowans, your Khaki Camp, all of them are basically mallards that have been selectively bred. Your Indian runners, all of it goes back to mallard stock. All your mallard breed ducks are, are pretty good workers. They're pretty mobile. They'll get around. Um, I don't know how happy they are going to be living in ElectroNet net and how easy they're going to be trained. So either a laying flock of chickens or a couple runs of meat birds is probably your best bet because you tell me that your soil's compacted and chickens are decompactors. That's what they do. They scratch soil. And you've done some seeding, and that's good, and that's a start. And what I would do is whatever you want to success that pasture into, I'd get a significant amount of seed, and I'd move those chickens. If they're meat birds, I'd build a couple tractors. If they are laying birds, if you can keep them in Electronet, I'd build them a mobile coop. And I think the easiest thing to do to continuously improve this pasture would be a good size laying flock of chickens. And I would set up your mobile coop with your battery and a solar charger right on it, and I would set it up so that your electro net can basically be rolled up and attached to the coop, and the coop can be moved and it can be redeployed. And I would make a st- you know my standard daily practice, or every other day, depending on how much utilization, how big the area is, how many chickens. To, at night the chickens will go to the coop on their own. They just that's what chickens do, and that's that's one nice thing about chickens. When they go in the coop, you close the coop up, you collapse your electro net. You roll your coop to your next place, you set it back up, you test it, you're good. You shut it off so it's not drawing power overnight, you know, because it doesn't really need to, because they're in the coop, they're not, you're not trying to protect the area, you're trying to have a good built coop. And uh, in the morning you come out, flip it on, and let your birds out. And I think, and, and wherever you've moved it from, you use a small amount, a light coating of seed right on top of where they've disturbed that ground. And if you can pulse your birds through that area two, three times uh, you know, before winter comes, maybe four even, with you know, daily moves or every other day moves, again, depending on disturbance, activity, et cetera, you'll probably see massive improvements in that pasture. If you just let them out there, they'll tear everything the hell up. They really will. Um, but you've got all these different animals, and I would be trying to figure out how to do kind of a leader-follower system here. And, and and you might do well to put that cow out there. And if you, you know if she's the kind of cow you can put out there with a lead and basically tie her up the way people graze horses. And I don't know if you can do cows that way. I've never done cattle, so I don't know. Um, but if you can do that or you can have some kind of a, a secondary containment area for her, even if she's only out there for, like, we take her out in the morning for a couple hours, let her graze, and then bring her back in, and then, you know, the next day the chickens get moved to where she was and they tear those cow patties up. Or if she's three or four days ahead of them even, so there's time for, you know, uh, maggots and, and and flies and stuff to get on that cow manure. Um, you're going to have to kind of figure this out as you go. But if I only had one animal that I could work with to improve, improve pasture, so long as I could move them either in a tractor or or a highly controlled situation like a mobile mobile coop with ElectroNet, it would be the chicken. The chicken is one of the most regenerative species on the planet, but it has to be highly disciplined. And that, that level of discipline cannot be overstated, and you have to have the capacity and the time to work with to do that. Um, I have four little Bantam chickens here right now that are going to be living with my quail. If that doesn't work out, they might go into a little small chicken tractor with a little mini coop, and they might get moved around in the little one small pasture where I can't really graze the ducks right now and see what they can do for me. That might be what happens with them. I don't know. If I end up going that route, I'll probably rehome the bantam hens and and put some full-size chickens out there. I might do that anyway. We'll see. Um, They are incredibly, incredibly regenerative, but they take discipline real discipline for that regeneration to be properly applied. Where the So the advantage of ducks is as long as they can't get to where you don't want them to get to. You can pretty much free range them in an area and they'll go home every night. You can train them pretty quick to go home when they're told. And they're pretty soft on the land. But it takes longer. It definitely takes longer. Um, and. You're going to have to provide them water, and you're going to have to go out and do it every day. And it takes a certain number of them. I mean, you got to think about this. I'm running these birds on two one-acre pastures and one three-quarter-acre pasture. And I'm running about 150 of them. And it's taken years to get where we have. And we're not where we really want to be yet. If I could run scratching chickens, highly contained and, and specifically put i think i'd be further ahead right now so it's just something to consider but again look at the situation you have with that cow and decide whether or not it really needs to not be out there and it could be something like i said it could be like an hour or two a day maybe in the evening or the morning when it's cooler and you don't have to worry about the poor thing being out there being beaten down in the sun and uh, you know kind of walking her out to an area and letting her graze just a little bit and drop a couple loads and bring the chickens behind her i think that might be your best bet with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show, another one of these uh, really uh, uh, high variety of subjects. And remember, if you're not pleased with what we're talking about, you have the power. This is a listener-driven show in total. All right? I do everything on this show for the listeners, but when we come to the Monday shows, which are the feedback by email shows, the Thursday shows, which are the shows where we do listener calls, and the Friday shows that are expert counseled are driven by listener emails, These are all driven by you. If there's subjects you want to hear more of, send email on them. Make a phone call about them. Ask an an expert counsel, call on them, and we will get them on the air for you. Remember, for this show, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Make your point or ask your question in one sentence. Then give me your details. Try to be specific, precise, and pair that. I might have to shorten the... The amount of time I allow on these calls, uh, where, where it'll cut you off uh, after a couple of the long calls a day. Uh, the guy called about military uniforms. That was a long call, and guys, I cut, I cut some of that one off too. It wasn't bad stuff. It's just like, okay, that's enough for one call. Um, anyway, try to keep your calls down about a minute. Uh, that I think will get you, it'll get you in the mindset where you have to give me the information, or you have to give an expert council member the information that's necessary to get the type of answer you're looking for and you don't kind of get off on things that aren't really relevant to the situation anyway if you do enjoy this show and you want to help support us one of the ways you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com if you go to tspaz.com from there you can see the Amazon deals of the day and uh, check that stuff out you can also just search for stuff once you get on over to Amazon and buy whatever you wanted to buy on Amazon in the first place. And you can see our reviews. And every day I post a review for you. We call it the item of the day. Today's item of the day is the Mad Bull Propane Airsoft Adapter. What the hell would you want one of these for? Well, if you don't know, you probably don't need one. Uh, the first thing you would have to be to want one of these, you'd have to be somebody that shoots airsoft guns. And you might thinking, I'm not a kid. I don't go out and play games on Saturday shooting at other people in the woods with airsoft guns. Well, I don't either. Uh, I've done a lot on airsoft guns in the past, probably coming up on time to start talking about them again in some ways, but uh, the reason I do it is because the airsoft guns that are made today are so realistic in how the function, the form, the firing, the, the simulated recoil, magazine changes, maintenance, holstering, everything's the same. And that means that you can go out and practice every day or a couple times a week and you can even practice while you're drinking a beer and cooking a steak, which I wouldn't advise with your firearm. And in doing so, you become more proficient, you hone, and you maintain your skills. So that's why you would do airsoft. Gas blowback airsoft is the way. And that's where the Mad Bull propane airsoft adapter comes in. Uh, green gas, which is what these are made to fire with, is about $21 a pound when you when you factor in buying a couple cans of it. And, you know, it, it works just fine. Well, what is green gas? Green gas is propane with some chemical additive that helps it not stink like propane and some lubricant. That's it. it they call it green gas because it sounds special and environmentally. Friendly. It's propane. It's propane, it's propane, it's propane. That's all that it is. Now, the thing is when you're shooting... These airsoft guns with propane, you don't get a real bad smell of propane. It's not that large of a volume. It's a relatively small amount compressed into the magazine that, that acts as a propellant for and uh, uh, allows the gun to actually cycle and function. So it's not that big a deal. And as far as uh, the lubricant, that's just silicon oil. So the way this thing works is you put some silicon oil in it, it sits on top of your propane can, and you fill your, your, your magazines with it, and it takes the silicon oil with it when it goes, so it's completely safe to shoot in your gun. And then you don't have dried o-rings and problems and things breaking and stuff like that. And you can get two, you know, two one-pound things of propane at like Walmart for like six bucks. So if you get one of these for like twenty-four bucks is what they cost, by the time you go through like two rounds of propane, it's paid for itself. That's why I believe if you do something that requires something that's an expendable in it. And there's a way to reduce the cost of that expendable to within, let's say, 60 to 90 days. The, the cost pays for itself, and everything after that you would call profit. It's no, You don't even think about it. You just do it. And I looked at it, and there's a lot of different adapters. I looked at a bunch of them. This is the best one that I could find. Again, it's called the Mad Bull propane adapter for you airsoft enthusiasts. Those of you that are not shooting airsoft but fancy yourself carrying a firearm, et cetera, you should be. You should be because you can do it anywhere, and it it, it will make you more proficient. Now, if you live in a place like I did in Royal Arkansas, where when you want to shoot, you can just go out and shoot whenever you want to, like I used to be able to do, then maybe you get enough practice with firearms. And firearms practice is better than airsoft practice. But when it comes to muscle memory, when it comes to target acquisition, when it comes to having real-time feedback, it's the next best thing. And I'll tell you what, even those of you that can shoot whenever you want, It costs a lot less. It costs a lot less. I mean, you go out and spend 15, 20 minutes practicing your skills, and you're out like a quarter. You can't buy one good round of freaking you know, 40 Smith & Wesson for that. Maybe two rounds, I guess, of cheap generic stuff. It's cheap. It's effective. And because you can do it anywhere and because it's safe and fun, you'll do it. And it's also great for training people. When you're not quite ready to take them to the real range yet. You want to develop a little bit of safety habits and things like that. Training kids, etc. Soft entry for your friends. Love Airsoft. Bull propane adapter makes something affordable even more affordable. Alright, with that, let's talk about the song of the day. This one I was like, wow, I, I would have never even thought of that. Um, today's song of the day is Star Trek in concert from Vienna in 2013. It's pretty awesome. It's like a melody of the various different Star Trek themes from the different Star Trek series. Uh, maybe Star Trek's not your thing. I don't think it'll matter. It's, this is a symphony, and it's, it's beautiful music. And I think it makes you realize, when you listen to it, apart from watching a trailer at the beginning of a Star Trek episode, ha- what great music really has come out of that series. But I wanted to take a second today to talk about what makes people like Star Trek. I don't know if it's just a bunch of science fiction fake stuff or whatever. You know I think what makes people like Star Trek is it gives us a glimpse of what mankind can be. And I don't necessarily mean running around the stars and you know interacting with a different alien species every week and you know, making out with green chicks or whatever. I I I think I mean more in the the the, the goals and the means by which humans in the Star Trek universe act, the things that they do, the way that they live, and the way they coexist with others peacefully as much as is possible. And what it makes me think of is I was watching a documentary on on Star Trek, the original series, which I think many people don't even realize. It only ran for three years, and the last year was 1969. So Roddenberry created this thing. It ran from 66 to 69. I think they did something like um, 79 episodes or something like that, though, in that in those years. I mean, that's, or 80 episodes. I mean, that's when they used to do, you know, 30, 40 episodes a season or something like that. Um, it, when I was watching this... Documentary about how they put it together and how they found the cast and all. And you got to think of where the United States was in 66 or 69. A lot of issues with civil rights still going on, etc. And they had this cast that included women, a black woman, etc. And this was, you know, people have made like, well, you know, they were still like subordinates, etc. Well, they, they went as far as they could for the time. But uh, Nichelle Nichols, who is the person that played Lieutenant Ahura, the communications uh, officer on the bridge of the original Enterprise, um, was talking, and she said that one day, about halfway through the first season, she kind of had an aha moment, and she goes to Gene Roddenberry, and she says, I know what we're doing for real here. And he says, Really? what are we doing? She goes, we're doing reality plays. And he he says, shh. Now, now, what do they mean by that? That means showing people the way things could be and the way things should be. And I'm sorry, did I say reality? I meant morality. Morality plays. She tells him, we're doing morality plays. He says, shh. Don't tell anybody. You'll ruin it. And, and that's what they were doing. They were showing people with kind of a drama and presenting a lesson about good conduct and good character and this actually goes back to the 15th and 16th centuries is where these morality plays came from and that's what Star Trek actually always has been it's 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 a morality play big questions how you struggle with them and how you answer them as best you could and doing the right thing for the right reasons Humanity falls short of a lot of that. But I think what the Star Trek universe did was give us a glimpse into a future where we could actually be that way. And I think that's why so many people really liked it. I think far more than it just being space and and what have you, that that, that's the, the, the true futurism of Star Trek because we don't know what the technological future really is going to be like in regard to space exploration. We just don't know. And it'll probably be far different than anything imagined on the big screen or the small screen. But the potential for us to actually interact with each other on a truly moral basis has always been there. And this is a glimpse into that. And I think you can actually hear that in this music if you listen to it. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.